Oh. I forgot to plug in... <laughs> I forgot to plug in the, the question counter. I'm not going to do it right now because it'll take a minute and I've already went live and... Oh, well. Welcome to the Tuesday Live. This is not... This is, look, look at how bad. Oh, I have to start over like three times now. Okay. Look, I'm Mike and you're you. And this is 20 questions with Pastor Mike on Friday at 1 p.m., which we do every week at the same time. And uh, I'm going to answer your guys' questions. I have the first question already loaded up. I don't have my question. I don't know what I was thinking. I wasn't ready. But you're ready because your questions are already flooding in. We're going to grab as many of those as we can, 19 of them from your live chat. And then I'm going to start with the first question today, which in the official word start. Look, if you could tolerate this horrible beginning of a video, you might want to actually subscribe to my channel because I do content to help you learn how to think biblically about everything. I teach verse by verse content. I have a, a whole series on the book of Romans, a series on first Peter, going through a series, almost done with the series in Mark. We're going to start Hebrews after that. I deal with controversial issues, challenging issues, try to have a balanced and thoughtful approach, lots of research. And then I summarize that content in teachings. So anyway, here we go. Question number one from uh, Andreas Z, who says, I heard on a program by the National Geographic that there's a belief out there that Adam was buried beneath where Jesus was crucified. Now, this is something that was, it was super interesting to me, this question. They say when Jesus died, his blood flowed down into the ground and through some cracks inside a tomb where Adam was buried and Adam was resurrected from that. I'm trying to find out where this belief even started, why it was started, and if there's any biblical or historical evidence to suggest that this ever happened. Have you ever heard of this? And do you know of any resources on this subject that might help me? Thank you. Okay, uh, Andreas. So here's here's my thoughts on this. Um, I actually had to... Had to really look into this because it's not certainly part of my tradition, but National Geographic often, they often present content. I've seen several of the videos, the documentaries they do where they present content that's weird. Okay. And they talk about Christianity and say things that are strange, not just strange to my Protestant, you know, Western ears, but strange to like the very nature and fundamental qualities that Christianity has. It is true that there's a, there's a tradition Christians have that Adam uh, was was buried in Jerusalem and it's underneath uh, where Jesus was crucified. And there's some who even say that's why it's called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. Okay, so it's the place of the skull and, and, and that's where, you know, Adam was buried and his skull, his bones are there beneath Jesus and where he was crucified. Then there are some who go a step further. There's only, a, a, that's a minority who hold that tradition. Then there's some who go a step further and say that Adam was in fact, um, you know, actually got his bones, got Jesus's blood dripped upon them. This is something that does occur in some of the early church fathers, right? I think Chrysostom was one of the ones who said it. Um, I, I'm trying to remember who else. There was a couple of the ones that mentioned it. And so we have it in some of the early church fathers where we don't have it is in the New Testament and where we don't have it is in the Old Testament. Now the Old Testament does track where some people are buried. And so we have Abraham, he's buried in the cave of Machpelah, right? And we hear about that. It, yeah, there, there's a Jewish tradition that Adam was also buried in that same cave, but that doesn't come from scripture either. This is some later tradition that comes from some unknown source. If the Old Testament wanted to track where Adam was buried, that would have been possible, right? They, they could have said, oh, in Jerusalem or where Melchizedek was, that's where Adam was buried or in the cave of Machpelah. But we never hear anything about the burial of Adam, whether he was buried, when he was buried, what, where, what happened to his bones afterwards. Um, if they still exist or not, like none of this is known to any degree in scripture. This is all 
post-scriptural, extra-biblical traditions held by some in the church. Let me give another example of an early church father holding a strange tradition that you and me would probably reject. Irenaeus, who's considered a pretty important one of the church fathers, right? He, now, he's not actually a father of the church. This is a misnomer. We use the term church father because everybody does, but these guys didn't father the church. The church was existing before they were born, right? Before they were doing anything. So they're, they're just called that historically speaking. But Irenaeus thought that Jesus was 50 when he got crucified. Why did he think this? I don't know. It's weird that he thought that. This is why we have scripture up here and everyone else down here. This is, this is a good moment for Protestants to be able to go, see, this is a reason why we don't just randomly select content from, from church fathers. So it might sound exciting because the symbolism Adam um, getting the blood of Jesus dripped upon him. But there's, I don't think that this is real. I think it's very unlikely. And I say very, very, very unlikely. And I don't know of any evidence other than some claims from people who have no reason to know where Adam was buried. So you have someone writing in like 150 AD, 250 AD, 400 AD. Why would they even know where Adam's bones were when all of the writings we have about Adam and scripture that precede those guys seem to have no clue. This seems to be a later tradition that cropped up and stuck around because people liked it. So yeah, I think that um, it's a good, good moment for us to remind ourselves that we believe in the Bible, the word of God, right? And the content that's not in there, while it might be interesting or it might even be desirable, it's not necessarily something we should put the label Christian on top of. So that, that would be my thoughts on that. Let's go to question number two. I wish I could click my clicker, but I'd have to get up and go plug it all in and get it going. And and uh, yeah. So Christina from Romania says, Hi, Pastor Mike. Can you please help me and my friend understand Proverbs 21.14 about bribery? We read, uh, We read the references below the verse, but still find it hard to understand. Well, let me go to the text itself and I'll give you the best answers I can. The goal here is to think biblically about things, and it's sometimes nice to just grab a text and grab a verse and say, hmm, let's talk about it. So here we are. This is the ESV. A, a gift in secret averts anger and a concealed bribe, strong wrath. Um, uh, let me, I'm going to take this in a couple different translations because when you read things in multiple translations, it gives you a clue as to whether or not there's a debate about the meaning of the words or how they should be translated. A gift in secret subdues anger and a bribe in the bosom, strong wrath. Uh, here, NASB being the more, more wooden translation says bribe in the bosom. ESV probably makes it easier to understand a concealed bribe, right? We would never in modern English say bribe in the bosom. Okay, no, that's, it starts to sound very strange because we have sexualized the term bosom, whereas they were looking at that word meaning something a little different in the past. Um, NIV says a gift given in secret soothes anger and a bribe concealed in the cloak pacifies great wrath. New King James says first Kings seven twenty six. Let me go to it real quick. Proverbs 21 and verse 14, a gift in secret pacifies anger and a bribe behind the back strong wrath. So you get, here's what's interesting. You guys don't even need, know Hebrew, but you know this one translation says uh, a gift, a bribe uh, in secret or as a, a hidden bribe, um, a bribe in, hidden in the bosom. The idea is you're covering it in, you know, in your chest area and one that's behind the back or one that's in a cloak. Okay, so it's a secret bribe. Um, okay, so here's, here's Proverbs in a nutshell. 
sayings that give you wisdom so you understand how life works and how to navigate life well. So here's a saying, a gift in secret averts anger and a concealed bribe strong wrath. Is it saying that these things are done uh, and it's righteous for them to be done when you bribe somebody? Is that a righteous thing? Uh, it might be two sides of a coin. Here's, here's a thought on this. A gift in secret averts anger. Okay, this could be a positive thing. Maybe the second one is more of a negative thing. Maybe they're those two sides of the coin. Um, so I, I, I go and I, I have a friend who we, we had a falling out. You know, he, we're not getting along. He was upset with me. And I take him out to a nice lunch and I pay for it. And nobody knows about it. It's just the two of us. So then the reason why this is nice is it's in secret. So I'm not doing it for face. I'm just doing it to give him something to be kind. So that could be like a gift in secret, a gift, a gift where, you know, nobody knows you're giving it to the other person. And in that sense, it, it turned their anger away from you. They were upset with you, but you did a kindness to them for no reason, for no applause, for no appreciation by anybody else. But a concealed bribe, that phrase starts to feel different, doesn't it? A concealed bribe acts like I'm trying to manipulate you. And so this could have the negative connotation potentially. And if it does, it could be simply the proverb saying, this is what bribes do. This is what bribes do. Bribes do change people's opinions. Say the judge is going to give the guilty verdict to somebody on trial and they get bribed by a, a secret bribe comes their way and they, they change their judgment so that it, it, it averts the strong wrath. This doesn't mean it's a good thing to do. There are other places in Proverbs that say that bribery is wrong, right? So this is, this is not to suggest that bribery is good. The whole council of Proverbs suggests that bribery, um, when a king takes bribes, it's, it's, it perverts justice and it's an, it's an evil thing. So there you go. You get two sides of the coin. Now, this is, I think, one of the gems or beauties of Proverbs is that it really is giving you true wisdom in life. You're getting like this idea of, hey, there's a time to give a gift in secret and it's, and it is effective, but it can also be manipulated or manipulative. There'll be my, my thoughts on that. Uh, question number three from Charles Tucker Norton, who says the church that I currently attend is in search of a new pastor. And the one that will be voted in is a Calvinist. I don't agree with Calvinism and question if I can submit to his authority slash teaching. What do I do? Stay, go. I don't want to be divisive, but I want to stand on God's truth and love. Um, okay. L let me just answer if, if I was in your shoes, Charles, this is how I would answer this question. So you don't have to have the same answer as me, but here's, you know, there's wisdom in a multitude of counselors, so you may want to ask this question of multiple people, but here's my thoughts on it. If I, in my own fellowship, had a, um, a, a Calvinist pastor take over, I would not leave the church. You guys can hear, I'm just pouring water into a cup. I promise nothing weird is happening. If you hear me, I just wanted water in my in my Bible Thinker mug. This is the old style mug, which by the way, we still have on sale. There's a link down below. This The, the funds aren't going to me at all. The majority of it goes to the potter who makes them. And then $5 per mug is going to like a different um, ministry thing that I want to sponsor. And I'll change that occasionally. I think for the month of June, I'm going to sponsor a ministry to refugees in the Middle East that I'll tell you guys more about. Maybe next Friday, I'll get more details. But, uh, but yeah, we're just raising funds for neglected ministries. That's what we're doing with the Bible Thinker mugs. Um, yeah. And if, if you do want to support my ministry, that can be done on BibleThinker.org. But I'm not asking you to just know there's a difference. I'm not selling things for the sake of supporting my ministry. Okay. Um, if my church hired a, a, a Calvinist pastor, I would not leave the church. Um, if the Calvinist pastor was teaching things very aggressively and 
where I thought it was causing problems for people, I would consider it prayerfully and slowly. But generally speaking, my advice to people who are thinking of leaving churches is be very, very slow to leave a church. I say be slow to kill out any relationship in your life. And when you leave a fellowship, you you sort of terminate a pretty significant relationship that you have with the body of Christ at that place. There are times to leave. Just be slow to leave. Be slow to leave. Your church will have bumps and cracks and flaws. And you can be there to help try to, you know, flatten out the bumps and fill in the cracks. <laughs> That's kind of one of our things is to say, boy, I see the problems in my church. I'm going to try to help make that that much better. So I'd say, don't be quick to leave. Don't be quick to abandon your church. Lest what ends up happening is you become a, a church hopper. Now I can give you an example of this from marriage. Um, as I take a drink of the water, I, I so obnoxiously poured. Ah, water's good. So in marriage... It's actually statistically true that a first marriage has the highest success rate in a person's life and that a second marriage has a much lower success rate. The, the amount of divorces in a second marriage is much higher percentage-wise than in a first. A third marriage has even worse statistics in fourth marriage and so on. It just gets worse and worse and worse. And I'm going to suggest that if we are quick to leave our church, we... We, we, will, um, we will have a low chance of being able to get plugged in healthily in another church. I'm not saying, for those of you who've left a church for good reasons, I'm not condemning you. I'm not trying to make you feel bad. I'm saying like, I pastorally care about your life and care about you being involved in the body. I know how easy it is to get disconnected from fellowship. So I say, be cautious, be slow, be patient. Wait till you absolutely know that it's time to leave. Leave as graciously as possible. I personally would not leave... Um, and I would consider fellowshipping at a Calvinist church if they would have me. <laughs> if that was just a great church in my area, I would consider that as well. So yeah, um, those are my thoughts on that. Um, yeah, it depends on how brazen the teaching is. Aquapoint Bishoy has a question. This is number th number four. I'm confused on two verses, Aquapoint says. Uh, Romans 4.3 and James 2.21. I don't believe the Bible has any contradictions. Can you please clear up my confusion on this? All right. I would love to. I think I already know where we're going here. So Romans 4.3, and I'll share it with you guys. Romans 4.3 says, For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. This is, this is going to be giving us how Abraham was saved. Now, this is brilliant. I don't know if you guys have noticed this. Romans 4 and asks and answers the question, how were people saved in the Old Testament? And the answer is by faith. Let me back up a little bit. Okay, let's get more context. Then we'll show James 2.21 and why this is understandably a confusing pair of verses when you put them together. Um, what then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our, father, our forefather, according to the flesh? Like, what did Abraham do by his works? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham, not by works, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. So he it quotes here Genesis saying it was just Abraham was saved by faith. He was righteous by faith. He was counted as righteous because of his belief in God. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due, that's just the nature of works. You are owed. Like if you, if you earn salvation with your works, God owes you salvation. But if you don't, if you just believe, then it's a gift. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one. And then he goes on to talk about how David was saved, right? Given righteousness 
apart from his works. So now let me go to uh, James 2.21. And keep in your mind, if this is the first time you've seen this particular challenging set of verses, keep in mind that the Romans passage uses terms like justified and not by works. God justifies us and he does it by our faith or by belief, not by our works. Justified is the key word here. Now let's look at James 2.21. What does James say? James says, was not Abraham our father, father justified by works? When he offered up his son Isaac on the altar. You see that faith was active along with his works. And faith was completed by his works. Now, when you're in Romans 4, you're in a how do you get saved passage. That's where, that's where you're at in Romans chapter 4. But in James, you're in a new context. You're in a how do you demonstrate to others that you're saved. One is how I'm actually saved. One is how I show I'm saved. This is, this is going to be my short answer to the question. Uh, an example of this would be, how do you get a job? Well, the boss hires you. How do you show someone you have the job? Oh, well, you show your ID or maybe you go to work and you get a picture of yourself while you're working. Look, I'm working here. I really do have a job here. But that's not how you got the job. That's how you demonstrate the job. We can do this all the time. How you get something and how you demonstrate it are two different issues. That's what James deals with here. James, to show that he's not dealing with how you get saved, he's dealing with how you demonstrate you're saved. I'll back up a bit. He says, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says or claims with his words that he has faith, but he does not have works? That's the thing. He's like, hey, I'm not talking about how you get saved. I'm asking how you prove it. If you simply say, but I believe in Jesus, and yet your life doesn't demonstrate your faith, is that really the kind of faith that saves you? Then he goes on. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace and be warm and filled, without giving them the things needful for the body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have, not have works, is dead. Faith, summer, this is again going to be the short version of the answer to this question. I actually have a whole study on this where it's like James 2, Protestant or Catholic view. I, th I think that's the title of the video, I think. So you can look at the long version. But here James is saying, how do you show that you're saved? How do you show that your faith is real? How would you show that you really cared about whether somebody was warmed and filled, but you don't give them nothing? Maybe you don't really care. Maybe those words are not true. Maybe if you don't do the things that Christians do, maybe your proclamations of faith aren't genuine and that that faith isn't real because real faith leads to works naturally. The works don't save you, but they help demonstrate your faith. Me giving you my ID doesn't make me employed but it does demonstrate that I'm employed. Me being, taking a photo of me at work, working at say like UPS and I'm working there, that doesn't make me employed at UPS, but it shows that I'm employed at UPS. Verse 18, he says, but some will say, you have faith and I have works. This is James responding to a complaint. This is how I understand James. Someone's going to come back to James and say, but James, you're saying you're saved by works. James, and this is exactly what people use James to say in James 2. They go, oh, James is saying you have to be saved by faith plus works. But this is not what James is saying. So he goes, you're going to complain and, and, and someone's going to say that you guys over there who are not showing fruit, you have faith and I'm over here, James, I have works. But then James helps us zero on what he really means. Show me. It's not about how you're saved. Show me your faith. It's about demonstrating it. So show me your faith apart from your works. Look, my works, me um, making certain choices in my marriage, making certain choices in my lifestyle, making choices like in my ministry, how I treat my neighbor, how I handle my family relationships, 
the way I do these things, the way I live this out, it shows you that I really believe Christianity is true. I'm showing you my faith. And James challenges them. How's this? Here's a, here's a deal. Give me an example of your faith. Show me your faith, but don't use works to do it. You're not going to be able to because you can't show faith. All you have is a proclamation of faith. The only way to show faith, the only way to demonstrate to the world that you truly believe is by works. So then James says, fine, you show me faith apart from works. I'll show you my faith by my works. And that is the function of, of works in James 2. Works demonstrate faith. Works prove that faith is genuine. Works show that faith is real. It's not just intellectual assent. I affirm that the gospel is true and Jesus died and rose, but rather it's, it's trust in Christ. It's true faith. Then he gives an example, verse 19. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Okay, so like, but I believe, James. Yeah, but the demons believe and they're in judgment. This is meant to shake people up if they have a lifestyle of wickedness and they're living as if there's no God and they say, yeah, but deep down I believe it's true. It's meant to shake them up. It's meant to have them go, what is really going on in my heart? Is my faith genuine? And at least have them question. Verse 20, do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? What was, was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? Now, here's where I'm going to say, Romans says it this way, and I'm going to use different words than Romans to help you understand how I interpret these verses. Romans is like, Abraham was justified in the eyes of God. He was made righteous when he believed God, Genesis 15, and God accounted it to him for righteousness. Now, James goes, sure, that's how he was saved. But years later, when God asked him to offer his son, years later, Abraham went and did it, which justified, not just before God, but demonstrated, justified, like showing true his faith to the, to the rest of us. We see Abraham's faith when we see him offering Isaac. That's how we demonstrate faith. So this justified is, yes, it's the word justified, but it's a different context, I think. Romans is saying, this is how you're justified in salvation, salvifically justified before God. Uh, James is saying, this is how you justify your claims of faith before the world. Do you get it? Okay, I hope that makes sense. Uh, that's how I view these passages. Um, so faith is active along, faith is completed by his works, right? Then the scripture is fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness and that he was called a friend of God. So a person is um, saved by faith alone, but real faith doesn't stay alone. It, it ends up playing out in your life and works and those works demonstrate the faith. I think, I think I've made it pretty clear. All right, let's see. Question number five. Sierra Laird says, is 2 Timothy 2.13 saying God is faithful to us or to himself? I hear people thanking God that when we're faithless, he's faithful to us, but it seems to be read opposite. You're an encouragement. Thanks. Thank you, Sierra. I'm very blessed to hear that. Let's go to this passage. I think I'm going to side with Sierra on this one even though it's not what I have often heard. Here we go. If we are faithless, he remains faithful. He cannot deny himself. I too have heard this verse quoted to be like, even though I'm totally faithless, God will still rescue me and save me because he can't deny himself. So I'm going to be okay. I'm going to be safe. But when we read the rest of the verses around it, it starts to feel a little different. Okay, so let me just go two verses back. The saying is trustworthy for, if we died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure with him, we will also reign with him. These are positive things. So if we die with him, we'll also live with him. That is um, uh, in, through my faith in Christ, 
I'm, I've died with Christ, but I'm also dying to my flesh and dying in that sense. Verse 12, if we endure with him, we'll also reign with him. So this has to do with like persevering as a Christian in your life. And then this part, if we deny him, he also will deny us. If we're faithless, he remains faithful. I think that it, there, there's a couplet of things here. There's two statements that are um, four lines, I should say, that go together that are positive. We die with him, we live with him, we endure with him, we reign with him. Then there's four statements that are negative. Let me highlight those for you. If we deny him, he'll deny us. If we're faithless, he remains faithful. I think that's in a negative sense, meaning even though we didn't have faith, he's going to fulfill those promises, which includes judging the world according to the truth of Christ. So I think that verse 13 is not meant to be, um, it's in the context, it's not meant to be an encouragement as much as, as it is a warning to those who who abandon the faith, who you know, basically depart from Christianity. Now, and you can have a separate debate whether they were ever saved or not. I'm not trying to enter into that, but the issue is that it is a warning. Now, it, there is a, a positive side to it, which is God does remain faithful, which is why you can always count on his promises, which is why if we die with him, we'll live with him. If we endure with him, we'll also reign with him. So there's a positive side to this, but I think the direct emphasis in verse 13 is more negative. So yeah, I'm going to go with you on that one. Catalina Friesen says, hi, Mike. Thank you so much for your ministry. And you're very ultimately hugely welcome. <laughs> How do I know if I'm living in the will of God for my life? Do wrong choices mean we have messed up God's plan and we're now living plan B? Man, Catalina, I was really worried about this when I was younger, like truly worried that I would, I would make some big decisions, some fork in the road kind of choices in my life. And then it would take me off of God's plan A, which I imagined as this like sort of really glorifying God hugely in my life, God using me in powerful and beautiful ways. And then beyond plan B where I kind of end up like on the shelf. Um, I don't know where I got that idea. I don't know where I got that idea, but it's not biblical. Let me give you some examples. Paul, the apostle. If there was a plan A for Paul's life, it probably didn't include him murdering Christians. Peter, if there was a plan A, it probably Im involved him getting the teachings of Jesus more readily, understanding them better, and not denying Christ when Jesus was on the cross. Like, look at these, look at these guys. Look at Jacob, Israel. The guy's, his life is kind of a mess and God still uses him and God still works in his life. I, um... I'm just going to say this, Catalina, and this might sound like backwards encouragement to you, but here's what encouraged me. When I looked soberly at my life, I realized I was being kind of arrogant. I was acting like I had made all these right choices up until then, and I was on plan A, and that if I made a bad choice, I then would be on some lower plan. And as I looked honestly and soberly at my life, I was like, goodness gracious, all the laziness and, 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 and sin that I've involved in my life. I'm not on, if there's a plan A, I ditched that a long time ago. I just don't think that's how God works for us, works in us. I think God has a plan that includes all the choices we make. And there are many, many, many opportunities to serve God in your life. And then even if you go through seasons of drought, seasons where things seem hard, oftentimes that's part of the plan. That's part of the agenda that God has. We won't really see the fruit of our lives for many, many, many years. I don't see any of this plan A, plan B, plan C. Um, if there is such a thing, I'm already personally on plan like Z55. 
and uh, and you could be there with me. The point is to serve God to the most of your ability now. My fear, if we believe this kind of attitude that there's this plan A, plan B, my fear is that we then discount the opportunities we have to serve God because we think, I guess, I guess it's over. So like, what's the point now? And whether you've been, whether you've backslidden and you've committed all kinds of heinous sin, whether you've been divorced seven times, like whatever it is, like serve God now, serve God now. Like he is definitely, look at Israel. Oh man, Israel's such a great example for you in this. And for me, for all of us is that they mess up so much. And yet what does God do? He keeps redeeming them. Read the book of Judges just again and again and again, they fail and fail and backslide and go back to the, to the wicked things. And God then brings them back and brings them back. Finally, we have them rejecting the Messiah, like corporately, so to speak. They reject the Messiah. And yet in Romans, we have these promises of a revival happening in Israel. God's still going to bring them back. God's still going to bless them and do great things. So if anything, the biblical teaching is serve God now, no matter what has happened in the past, and rejoice that he can use even our brokenness of our past for glorious things. I think that... God used Paul's previous experience persecuting the church. He used that for good in Paul's experience serving the church even. Uh, just absolutely beautiful. Um, let's see. Okay, we've got all our questions. We have all 20 questions. I'm going to hit number seven now, which is from Tara Carlson. But you guys, I mean, if you want to put a question in the chat, you're welcome to, but we're, we're not going to be taking more questions today. So Tara Carlson says, does Numbers 14.29 give us any biblical reason to believe the age of accountability to be 20? In Numbers 14 verses 18 and 19, Moses pleads with God and God pardons the sins of the children 19 and younger. Okay. Let's look at that. Um, <coughs> numbers 14, 29. Um, God's, th this is where Israel rebels against God. Like they don't want to go into the promised land. They're not going to listen to God. And here he says, your dead body shall fall in this wilderness which doesn't mean he's going to kill them. It means they will be in the wilderness the rest of their lives, right? That's where they'll die because they're not going to enter the promised land. And of all your number listed in the census from 20 years old and upward who have grumbled against me, not one shall come into the land where I swore that I would make you dwell, except Caleb, the son of Jephunneh and Joshua, the son of Nun, because these two guys were the two of all the spies who said, no, no, no. Yeah, there's big, scary people in there. Let's go take it anyway. God is with us. They were the only two who had faith, emphasis on faith in the Old Testament again. But let's go back to verses 18 and 19. You also mentioned these. Here, it says in uh, Numbers 14, 18, The Lord is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgression, but he will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation. And, oh, and that, that's the end of what God said. Then Moses, I believe, Quoting God says, please pardon the iniquity of this people according to the greatness of your steadfast love, just as you've forgiven this people from Egypt until now. Um, yeah, so God actually says, I, I've pardoned, I'm going to forgive them. So they are actually forgiven, but none of them. And then here's the key. Why is it 20 and older? Why is it the 20 and older die in the wilderness? None of the men who have seen my glory and my signs I did in Egypt and in the wilderness, and yet have put me to the test these 10 times and have not obeyed my voice, shall see the land that I swore to give to their fathers. It's it's going to be the ones who saw and experienced those things. There's obviously some greater measure of accountability, right, for the 20, up, 20 and up crowd. 
they're also counted in the census, which means that when you counted the numbers of the people of Israel back then, they would only count 20 and up. Also, 20 and up are able to engage in war. 20 and up, they're going to be the men of war. Probably not if they're 65 or 70, but if they're over 20. But is that the same thing as saying there's no accountability for somebody who's 20 and older? And I think here's where we, we, um, we're asking a question that the passage isn't trying to answer. There's greater accountability for the 20-year-old, but that doesn't mean there's no accountability for the 19-year-old. So the 20-year-old in their society is making their own intentional decisions. They're, make, they're, they're accountable for things like battle, but they're also making choices. If they're casting votes and they're voting on the direction that their culture is going to go, like are we going to go into the land? The 19-year-olds, it sounds like they weren't even given a vote. So they're not accountable for something that they don't have influence over. So it makes sense why they're having less accountability there. But we also read about things like um, people who are under the age of 20 in scripture who seem to be doing things that are morally wrong and they seem to be morally accountable for those things. And so we, we could use an example of, um, of Elijah and the young men. Now these young men were, oftentimes skeptics want to suggest these young men who called called him a bald man? Go up, you bald head! Right? They say to him that they were like like children, like seven year olds. This is probably not true. I think that this is something um, skeptics like because it makes it demonizes the Bible. But more, realistically, though, these are probably more like teenagers, like 17, 18, maybe even some in their twenties. But they they're accountable for what they do. There there's a good reason why under twenty weren't accountable for the decision to not enter the land because they weren't involved in the decision. It wasn't up to them. And so under that age, we're not held accountable. And God brought them into the land instead. And then he made them accountable for other things. So, yeah, I think there's probably other examples in scripture of people being morally accountable who are under the age of 20. Um, I will say this. It does strike me, not a biblical argument here, but just it strikes me as extremely odd to think that a 19-year-old man who has like a three-year-old kid is not morally accountable for his decisions. That would seem to me immoral, right? Like that would seem truly immoral to think that like if a 17-year-old guy um, molests a six-year-old girl, that he's not morally accountable. That to me just is shockingly against the grain. So yeah, I'm, I'm going to suggest that's probably not the case. And the numbers passage doesn't seem like it's really about age of accountability. It's about accountability for a specific decision not to enter the land, which they probably didn't have a vote on. All right, number eight, Randy of Loxley says, Mike, really appreciate your ministry. Thank you. Thank you, Randy. The man uh, who was at the wedding feast without a wedding garment in Matthew 22, 11, is he like what would uh, what would be called a nominal Christian? Okay, let's, let's look at the passage. I don't know if I'll be able to answer this, but let's read it together and consider it. I don't know if it is for you guys like this, but for me, often the parables, I have to like restudy them all the time. Like I'll, I'll have my views on a parable and then I'll like a, a year or two goes by and I'm going, man, I got to look back at it again. And this is one that's not fresh on my mind, but let's read the whole parable and we'll get to verse 11 and we'll try to understand what he, who that might be. And again, Jesus spoke to them in parables saying the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king. Now these are parables about the kingdom of heaven. This is just the nature of the kingdom, um, which we often want to think of as the nature of the new Testament church. I think it might be bigger than that. It applies to the New Testament church. It applies to the 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 um, that new covenant that was that we're brought into. But it might also be larger than that. 
Anyway, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son and sent servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. Now, that's the weird part of the parable so far. They're not going to, they refuse to come. That's weird. Again, he sent other servants saying, tell those who are invited, see, I've prepared my dinner, my oxen and my, my calves, my fat calves have been slaughtered and everything's ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went off. One to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his... Now, this is where it gets crazy. And again, parables aren't meant to be like, this is a true story. This is like a story for a purpose. While the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. Okay, now, obviously, the king's angry. This is... Part of the parable here is to show you the kind of invitation that the gospel is. The gospel is an invitation to come partake of the blessings of God. And... People respond to it sometimes with such hatred and such rage. And it, it, it's shocking to think you're just invited to a wedding and you're going to kill the servants inviting you. But there are times where the gospel is responded to this way. Uh, verse 7, the king was angry and he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. So his wrath was there. He brought wrath down upon them. Then he said to his servants, the wedding feast is ready. Um, now, let me just say this, this very well could relate to Israel. This could relate to Israel itself because um, not that Israel's forever forsaken or something like that because they're not. There's great hope for their future. But but the king's angry. He sends his, sends his troops and destroys those murderers and burn their city. The, Jesus also prophesied in, in close proximity here in Matthew. He's like just prophesying about the destruction of the temple that happens in 70 AD as well as future things that happen beyond that. So I think this is saying that the people initially invited to the kingdom are the Jewish people. They're being asked to join in and enter into the kingdom. Then he said to his servants, the wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go therefore to the main roads and invite the, to the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants went out to the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. Now, th these servants now would be, so the first servants are kind of like the prophets, maybe like John the Baptist, killed right? As he's trying to bring Israel to repentance, then these next servants might be the, like the New Testament apostles and, you know, going out into the, into the world. They go everywhere. They're like, okay, Paul says in Acts, like, since you guys don't want the gospel, I'm going to take it to the Gentiles. And he, they don't quit preaching to Jews at all. They just made sure to go to Jews first and then they go to the rest of the world. So it goes to all bad and good, everybody. So the wedding hall was filled with guests but when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. Now, this is interesting. Obviously, it's meant to be symbolic. The wedding garment means something. It represents something important. And he said to him, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the attendants, bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth for many are called, but few are chosen. What is the man without the wedding garment? It's a guy who responds by trying to be part of the church who's not really part of the church. That's how it seems to me. Um, your question is, could it be like what we call a nominal Christian? Now, when we say nominal Christian, what we mean is someone who's a Christian in name only. Or what James was worried about some people being in James 2. Where you just, you say you're a Christian. You, you claim you're a Christian. Um, but everything you do brings that claim into question. And it makes people go, I mean, he names himself a Christian, but is he really? Jesus talks about this problem in other places too. And he talks about it kind of in a way that I think relates to Matthew 22. He talks about tares amongst the wheat. So in another one of Jesus' parables, he tells a story of a farmer who, farm, who throws out good seed in his field, but then an enemy comes and he throws out bad seed. 
And the bad seed isn't wheat, it's called tares. Now tares is a really interesting thing. It's a type of thing that looks like wheat and it grows up and it's hard to tell the difference between tare and a tare and a wheat stock. But when it becomes full grown and normally the wheat would then produce the actual grains that you can use to like create bread and stuff, that's when the tares show their true colors and you can kind of tell they're different. You can actually kind of make food out of the stuff that comes out of tares, but it's slightly poisonous. It causes lethargy. It causes sleep, sleepliness. Sleepliness is not a word. Anyway, it causes sleepliness. And so this is to me, the tear amongst the wheat is someone who looks like a Christian, claims to be a Christian, but their fruit is different, which helps indicate that in, in reality, they never were. Satan wants, wants people who are in his kingdom to be in your church because it helps create sleepiness. It helps create lethargy. It helps to water down the church. It helps to damage the witness of the church to the world. I think Satan wants to be in church more than sometimes Christians want to be in church. And this man with, with the wedding garment, yeah, you can, you can hang out. You could, you, you know, churches are generally very welcoming. We're like, come one, come all. We know we've got people who aren't really saved. We're glad they're there because we're just hoping that they'll hear the gospel and get saved. There does come a time to say, hey, you know, you're, you're living so contrary to the gospel. It's time for you to go. This is something a lot of churches are very loath to do. They're very resistant to do kind of like church discipline. But, I, you know, I think that God in his wisdom has told us to do this on occasion and we should do it not to cause division, but to cause purity in the body of Christ um, and hopefully help that person as well. But that man, he's there in the wedding feast until the king shows up and he's like, hey, you know, you're not really part of this group. And that seems to be a nominal Christian. All right. I, I probably answered that one longer than I should have. But number nine, Amanda Hinian says, what scripture shows that two heterosexual Christians who love each other and intend to marry can't cohabitate if they are celibate? Um... Scripture never addresses that exact scenario, to my knowledge, Amanda. There's no verse anywhere that says they can't cohabitate if they're celibate. But here's another important point. There's no verse anywhere that says they can cohabitate if they're celibate. The biblical example seems to be um, in Genesis. Now, now, let's talk about verses that may allude to a question, to an answer to this question. Um, in Genesis, the that a man leaves his father and mother and cleaves or clings to his wife and the two become one. So that the occasion of leaving one household to join the other household is also the occasion of the marriage. That's implied in Genesis when it describes the way marriage works. Now that's pretty important because Genesis sets the standard, the gold standard of relationships on a romantic basis or on, you know, sexual relationships. Man leaves his father and mother and they become one. So it's a once for lifetime, two becoming one and that's the unity that's meant to be there. So the implication would be um, you have half the formula of Genesis. You leave your father and mother and you don't become one. Okay, that, that just seems to be confusing. I'm not saying it's wicked exactly, okay? Um, let's add more complexities. You have two Christians that love each other and they want to marry, but they also want to cohabitate first. Here's the thought. Why on earth, and I'm truly puzzled by this, why on earth would you cohabitate and not just get married? Like if you can live together, why on earth are you not getting married? And I know, look, it is a it is a huge issue in the body of Christ right now, all over the place, especially in Western countries, where Christians don't give a rip 
about God's commands for sexual purity. It is so bad right now. And the uh, the statistics on Christians who cohabitate before marriage, that is shocking to me. I could I could throw stuff at you and say, hey, do you know that if you cohabitate before you're married, the chances you'll get divorced are way higher. Like that's statistically there, right? Like the chances of divorce go up hugely if you live together before you're married. You would think the other way around, but that's we'll give all sorts of justifications for our, our sins. Um, it's also true that it's not a biblical example. It's also true that in most cultures where the Bible has gone, people would look and they would say, that's not right. That's not right. Most of the Christians and, and you know, throughout time would agree that that's inappropriate. Definitely would have been rejected by early the Jews of Jesus's time. Like th- they would never have considered this to be okay. When Jesus gives these blanket statements in scripture about sexual immorality, Right When he just uses that blanket term, sexual immorality, they don't name every possible sexual sin, nor would they because they would consider it taboo to simply discuss in detail every possible sexual sin. They would consider that a problem. They would consider, consider it strange, um, stumbling to people even. But when Jesus uses the blanket term, sexual immorality, I think that that includes, and I'm not here talking just about cohabitation, but people who are sleeping together before marriage. That would, that would include that sexual immorality. I know this is counterculture. But Christianity is always counterculture. Like if you're going to follow Jesus, you can't follow the world. I know I sound like your old youth pastor. <laughs> but for some of you, I am your old youth pastor. So, um, so yeah, we just we, we have to follow the ways of God. And that means genuine sexual purity. That, And there are those who um, rail against what they call purity culture and all that. Look, I don't, I start with scripture and Jesus. And the amount of purity that Jesus calls me to is such that the world's never going to be comfortable with it. Um, and I'm just going to want to follow him. So yeah, I, I think we have a lot of good reasons not to do it. If you're going to live together, just get married is my counsel. And if you're like, but we're not ready to get married. Well, then don't live together. Like, well, we can't afford it. Like find another way. There's got to be another way. There's got to be another plan you can go with here. Um, this, this seems like a very dangerous ground. And I would be very sketchy, skeptical that they would actually stay pure as they cohabitate. And it's like midnight. And no, surely nothing will happen. <laughs> Good luck with that. that. I wouldn't have made it if I was cohabitating with my wife before we were married. We would not have stayed pure. Number 10, Flower Gardener 231234 says, My father was a physically and mentally, was physically and mentally abusive when I was a child. Can I stop talking to him and still be honoring him? Um, let me say a couple things. First is this. I don't know enough about your situation to truly give you counsel here. Um. I know there's a lot of stories and a lot of heartache and hurt and trauma in the past. And I also know it's possible that some of that trauma is still ongoing. I would say if the father is continuing to abuse, continuing to be mentally, say, abusive or even physically, then you may have a case for not wanting to interact with that person and be like, look, I want to honor you all I can. But the truth is like, let me give you an example. Honor your father and mother. Okay, let's say your dad's chasing you with a knife and he says, stop running away from me. I want you to honor me. Like the, the idea of honoring your parents was not supposed to say, like, let them, let them stab you with knives. Okay. And you, and I know, I know some skeptics going to say, um, Abraham and Isaac, Isaac was going to let Abraham. Yes. Well, this was because they had a direct word from God, not because Abraham was just a guy with a knife coming after his son. So on that, (laughs) those are not comparable things. Um, so yeah, I, I don't think so. There's examples in scripture of, um, Gideon destroying his father's idols, right? He destroys his own father's idol without his dad's permission. 
Now his dad backs him up, which is awesome. But when Gideon does this, you could easily say you're not honoring your parents, but he's honoring God first. And again, that's our principle. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind. Love your neighbors yourself. Like there's there's a priority here of loving God first. So yes, there are definitely situations where you can, you can say, I, I have to cut off relationship with this person. I love them. I want to honor them. But their behavior is so abusive, is so bad that I can't. I can't do it. I can't be involved in them at all with them at all. I think that can happen. But then on the other side, there is the danger that you, that we're just unforgiving about the past. So let's say the abuse was past, but it's been it's been dealt with like it's never happening again, the person's changed, but I'm just bitter and hurt. And here I want to say my counsel to you is not just get over it, but keep praying, keep seeking the Lord and ask for him to show you how to offer some of the forgiveness he's given you to your father. That's huge. If the behavior has changed and there's a chance for restoration in a horrible, disgusting, broken relationship to be restored in a godly way, then Christians want to grab hold of that with both hands as best we can restore that relationship. God does that with us. He does not hold against us the sins of our past, but he does call us to make the change, you know, and to, to live differently now. And so, um, may God give you the wisdom to be able to navigate your situation. I pray the Lord would guide you. Flower Gardener, 231234. <laughs> yeah. All right, Hot Wax 93 has a question, number 11. Uh, what are your thoughts on assisted suicide and euthanasia? Um, I feel there's a simple answer and there's a complicated answer. So I, I feel that um, my simple answer is uh, it's wrong to end a life. Like it's wrong to just end a human life without some major justification. Generally, the, the rule of thumb is you don't kill people, including yourself. That's the rule of thumb. Okay, so assisting people in committing suicide seems wrong. Uh, euthanasia in that case seems wrong. And I think that that seems pretty simple and clear. The, however, there's another area that seems more fuzzy to me personally. And I, I don't know the, the whole right answer here. So forgive me. And some of you can comment down below your thoughts on this. I just recommend you answer with more than a slogan, like explain your thinking here so we can understand. Um, but that is when, you know, we now have the medical abilities to sustain life in some pretty miserable conditions. And it's not, you know, here's the question. Is it killing someone to pull the plug? So I was part of a, a, a medical ethics committee as a, as a pastor. They, they, they brought me in because there was a gentleman, an old man, who was in the hospital and he was on a ventilator, he's like a respirator, and he was in really, really wretched condition. He was not responsive, he was not gonna come back. And, and, and this, is, this is what they did, they have a meeting where they have like his doctor, they have like, uh, like four or five different people that are there, and they have an, a meeting and we literally vote on what to do with this gentleman. This was like sobering, this is, this is a, major decision that's being made. I was brought in because they wanted to bring a religious person in. The family, you see, the person, he had sons, but his, his sons decided not to make the decision. So it defaulted to, this, to the hospital to make the choice. And they, bring, they have a rule where you bring in a committee to make the choice. Um, so we met and we talked to the doctor. And they said, you know, he's, he, here's his condition. He's, he's non-responsive. He's never going to wake up. He's, he's, he may be in pain. And he's in extremely bad physical condition. And, and I, I remember saying, can I, can I go see him? Because we were just looking at papers that described the guy. And I, so I asked to go see him. And I went and I looked at him. And you could tell in a glance, this is not a condition to be in. 
Like he's, he's only alive because medically it's forcing him to stay alive. And I prayed over him and I re- went around the table and prayed for him. And, and I remember the nurse who was there, she was one of the people who was part of the group. And she was just like, thank you so much for that. Because this is so hard. And I talked to the doctor. They said, there's no way he's not going to get better, you know. And so my vote was, yeah, I think you guys should pull the plug. That's a really hard choice. But it's also a really hard choice not to. And it's there that I, that I have the debate. When do you stop assisting life? I would never assist suicide. I'm not going to do euthanasia personally. I think those things are wrong. I think it's wrong. I think God just says, like, don't kill. Like, this is a blanket rule. Like, you're not going to kill. But when it comes to f- forcing people uh, through artificial means to prolong, you know, their heart beating and their lungs breathing, that's a true challenge. I hope I made the right choice. God God will deal with me if I didn't, and um, I hope I did. Tough, tough stuff. All right, we'll go to the next question, which is um, Duff Guy one two three four, who says, might be a dumb question, but if the Holy Spirit came upon Mary so that she could be, uh, Jesus could be born, wouldn't that make the Holy Spirit Jesus's father? Um, uh, no, um, unless you have the very peculiar Mormon theology, which would be that God physically had sex with Mary because God has a physical body. And um, at least some Mormons have that theology. And um, yeah, so Jesus wasn't born through um, biological procreation where there's a mother and a father. Jesus doesn't have a physical father at all. That's, That's the thing. He doesn't have one at all. So there's no egg and sperm that are going on there. It's miraculously done. So there isn't a father. Um, now, um, the Holy Spirit is never called the fa- father by Jesus. And so I'm going to go with Jesus here, how he des- describes the Holy Spirit. He's another helper who's going to come to you. He's the Holy Spirit. But when he talks about God, the father, first person, of the Trinity, he calls him father. And that has to do with, um, relationally pro- probably has to do partly with the way the conception happened, but also more, more so he's his relationship with God. Yeah, he's the second person of the Trinity, and he has this tight personal relationship he then gives to us. Now we cry out, Abba, Father. I cry out, Father, to, to God, but God didn't biologically produce me. So the, the fatherly relationship is not about biology. It's about relationship. That's what it's about. Yeah. So, um, yeah, the, the biblical teaching on the Holy Spirit, um, you know, coming upon Mary, the idea is that it's miraculous, Right. There, there's there's some sort of miraculous creation thing happening here. And do we get more details? No. Like God could fill in the blanks of details on that. We don't know. We just know it was miracle, not natural. So you wouldn't look to identify a father in that sense. Number 13, Matthew Entwistle says, what is Pascal's wager? And do you believe that it has to be refuted? That it has been refuted. Excuse me, Matthew. I used to think it had been refuted because I didn't understand it well. Pascal's wager is... Often you hear it put this way, and this isn't Pascal's wager, but often you hear it put this way. Um, hey, uh, like let's say you're you're a non-believer, you're 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 uh, just a, an agnostic. You don't know what you believe, right? And I and I say to you, hey, look, if I'm right, um, I go to heaven, and then you'll stand before God and be judged for your sins, right? And they go, yeah. And they said, and if I'm wrong as a Christian, and you're right to just stay agnostic or be atheist, perhaps, then You'll die and nothing will happen. 
So it's a better bet to go with me. I'm, you know, to take a chance that you'll have eternity in heaven. And that's kind of Pascal's wager. But let me just say, Pascal's wager is like way smarter and better than that. And he gives a lot more details than that. That's like kind of the crude pop understanding of Pascal's wager. And it can be refuted relatively easily because basically you then have to go with whatever religion makes the best promises. Well, well, maybe um, there's this other religion that is even even a better heaven and an even worse hell. And so then I'm going to go do that religion to make the best the best possible heaven experience I can. Rather, here's another way to do Pascal's wager. You, you look at the evidence for different religions. You look at the evidence for your atheism or whatever your position is. And then when you're on the fence, if you're undecided, then you would go with the safest bet. That's a little bit of a different perspective to make. And, and by the way, you know who you should look up on this? Who's going to share, share it way better than me? She'd probably roll her eyes if she heard me describing it. Is Liz Jackson. Liz, L-I-Z, Liz Jackson, who's a philosopher, who's done tons of work on Pascal's Wager. She's a believer. And it's partly her work that I looked at that made me go, wow, Pascal's Wager is actually really smart and not so hard to defend. I like Pascal's Wager. So, yeah, I do like it the a good robust thoughtful version of it don't care for a pop version of it um but yeah let me give you an example um let's say that you you come to a turn in the road and you're like yeah I, I don't know if i should go left or right but if you know at least someone told me if i go right i'll find my destination and if i go left i'll fall off a cliff and die so i don't know if i should go left or right but being that I don't know, I'll probably go with the person who gave me some, <laughs> some, some good reason, some good advice over here to try to go this way. That that it's like a way of sort of saying, I'm at least gonna, gonna, take the 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 gamble that seems to produce the better results. Um, another way to put it is, let's say you're atheist agnostic, but you're not quite certain, but you know that Christianity, at least might be true. Okay, that's pretty significant. It might be true. It could be true. You know, there's there's evidence for the resurrection of Jesus. There's there's the prophetic stuff in the Bible that I don't really know how to explain. There's um there's a lot of testimony evidence as well. Uh, yeah, the, the unity of Scripture. Like there's there's some things that are pretty interesting to me. I don't really see that in other religions. Okay, there, there's a reason perhaps to be Christian. And then you're not convinced. You're not really make that leap. And so perhaps you wager on God this way. You just start going to church. You just start praying. You're not going to lose something by praying. You just start praying, God, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm not sure what's real out there, but but I know that it might be true that Christianity is the truth. So, so I'm going to pray. Help me, help me find you. I'm going to start reading the Bible. I'm going to start going to the worship services. And you start doing these things that might result in greater levels of confidence. Anyway, look up Liz Jackson. She says it a thousand times better than me. And um, I do think Pascal's Wager has a lot of value if we get past the pop level misunderstanding of it. Every atheist video I saw refuting Pascal's wager was was lousy once I understood it better. Um, although I'm probably not summarizing it as well as I'd like. But Weston K has a question, number 14, who says, what is the name, the new name in Revelation 2.17? Is it the individual's new name that receives the white stone or is it Jesus's new name? Let's go. Revelation 2.17, this is in the letters to the churches where Jesus is giving messages to each church um, individually, and he talks to each of them about the prospect of overcoming and what happens if they'll overcome. So he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name 
written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Um, so there's a new name. It's written on the stone. No one knows it except the one who receives it. I don't know. It could be one name. Everyone who receives this new name, they have the same name and they all know it. That's possible. It, it, however, in the, in the same book, in Revelation, we, um, or it could, excuse me, before I move on, it could also be different names for each, each one of us. We each get a different name and no one knows the name except the one who receives it, which is interesting that you, you alone would know the name that you're given. I don't really know entirely what the significance of that. Um, but let's compare this later on in Revelation 19 talking about Jesus, it says his eyes are like a flame of fire and on his head are many diadems and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. That's interesting. That's very interesting. He has a name written that nobody knows except himself. I think that's very interesting. So, um, I don't know. I don't know. I, I, I thought there was another verse that was going to mention this, um, as well that might shed light on it. Yeah, I'm not sure. Okay, so I'll just I'll just say that both those options seem on the table. It could be that it's the name, the new name of Jesus. There's some sort of a new knowledge, new understanding of Christ, and each of us receives it, and we have that as well. There could be individually a new name that we'll receive also. I guess I lean towards thinking it's it's Christ's name, but I'm not sure. And uh, I'd love to hear your guys' thoughts on that as well. I haven't spent as much time on it as I probably should. Uh, Sarah, Sarah Merriman, number 15, says, Do you think that being pro-life means that I should also support immigration, refugee resettlement due to the pro-life belief that children should be taken care of regardless of circumstances? Um, let me actually clarify what, the, what I think the pro-life belief is. The pro-life belief isn't that children should be taken care of regardless of circumstances. I'm not saying that's not a valuable thing. Don't, don't, don't think I'm rejecting that. I think the pro-life belief is that it's wrong to kill innocent people. That's the pro-life belief. Yeah. It's wrong to kill innocent people. That's pretty much summarized the pro-life belief. Now, if that's our moral thing, does that mean that if I'm pro-life, I'm against abortion, that therefore I have to support immigration and refugee resettlement? No. No, because my, my policy is not everyone has to be taken care of if they're under a certain age. No, it's you're not allowed to just kill people because you feel like it. That's my policy, right? Like people can't just be killed. This is like a basic human right. We have a right to life. That's, that's it. Now, I also think in addition to that, personally, I'm, I'm pro-life, but I also believe that parents have a moral obligation to their children to care for them. Parents. Okay, I think that's a parental obligation. How about society? Does society have an obligation to help immigrants and refugees? Now, I'm going to say, separate from my pro-life opinion, that I think we do. I think society does. I think that when we have hurting neighbors, it's it's it behooves us to take care of them. It's not the same as my responsibility to take care of my children, though. I think I have to take care of my children as a priority above taking care of my neighbor. I think that's just my, my understanding of my moral compass here. Um... And I hope that reflects a biblical view as well, um, that that you don't you, you don't neglect your own children. You, know, you you take care of your family, right? The 
you know, in, in um, I'll give you an example of this. In the pastoral epistles where it talks about people being being in ministry, it suggests that if a man doesn't take care of his own household, he shouldn't be in ministry, but, but he's worse than an infidel or an unbeliever. So that the idea is like, if you're not taking care of your own household, like you can't be serving others in ministry, which is taking care of your neighbors because you need to take care of your own house. So I think my parental obligation to take care of my own kids, it trumps my obligation to take care of, say, a refugee, but that doesn't mean I don't have an obligation to take care of a refugee. But taking care of refugees is loaded language because you're like, how many? Which ones? In what ways do I take care of them? And here's where I'm going to bow out and say, I don't have the knowledge to tell every country in the world how exactly they should function. I just think there's some moral obligation to con be concerned about refugees and those who are without and those who are suffering and those who are likely to be oppressed in your environment or in your neighborhoods. I think we do have an obligation to take care of them. What exactly that looks like gets beyond my experience and beyond my abilities and beyond my power to influence governments and all that. So yeah, I'll say that. Uh, Ricardo Sierra has a question, number 16. Brother, what is the deeper meaning of Matthew 12, 22 through 28? I'm a little confused. Can a false teacher cast out demons? If so, wouldn't that be a kingdom that is divided? Okay, let's check this out. Matthew chapter 12, verses 22 through 28. Let's just read this here. Then a demon oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him and he healed him so that the man spoke and saw and all the people were amazed and said, can this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, it is only by Beelzebub, the, the, the prince of demons that this man cast out demons. Okay, so this is the accusation that we're going to explain away Jesus's miraculous work, casting out demons and healing people as being done by the power of Beelzebub or Satan. Knowing their thoughts, he said to them, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste and no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he's divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? Now, this makes sense. Okay, because Jesus was going all over the place casting out demons. All over the place. Cast like a, a legion of demons out of one man. He, he casts demons out of everybody who's brought to him. Um, he's just wrecking, right? the demonic strongholds of the world going on at the time. And he's like, if Satan's doing that, he's destroying his own kingdom, guys. This isn't like a little trick. This is like, I'm I'm casting demons out everywhere. Okay, so verse 27. And if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. Okay, so maybe this is part of your question. You're like, wait a minute. The, their sons are casting out demons and Jesus is affirming, as it seems, it's implied that they're casting out demons by, by God's power. Okay, so who are these sons and how does that relate to your question? Keep that in mind. Let me read the next verse and we'll come to it. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. So Jesus cast out demons by the Spirit of God. Now, let's read your question one more time. You're a little confused. You say, uh, can a false teacher cast out demons? If so, wouldn't that be a kingdom that is divided? Um... Uh, the question isn't, in the passage, the issue is not, how legitimate are you? The question is, the issue is, who are you casting out demons by? So, what's the power behind your ability to cast out demons? Jesus. It, we say it's Beelzebub. Jesus is like, that's silly. I cast out demons by the Spirit of God. He then says, who do your sons cast out demons by? Now, that your sons could be literally their children, or it could simply be, 
There are other people who cast out demons as well. Do you ever accuse them of doing it by Beelzebub? No, they never would. These same guys would rejoice if one of their own uh, followers was casting out a demon. They'd be like, well, like, praise God, look at the power of God. So th that might be all Jesus is saying there. Now you ask this question, can a false teacher cast out demons? I think the answer to that is um, possibly because the question wouldn't be the, the identity of the person. It would be, did the demon get cast out by the power of God? And so we have a strange story in Acts relating something where this they try this and it fails, where there's these guys that, that they do exorcisms and they try to exorcise this demon by saying, we cast you out, you know, in the name of Jesus, whom Paul preaches. And the demon says like, well, I know Jesus and I know Paul, but I don't know you. And he beats him up. And so there obviously didn't work. But is it possible that like theoretically that a false teacher could come up and be like, He's a false teacher, but he's teaching the truth, like, or he's teaching some true things. <laughs> he's obviously teaching some false things, but he comes up and he says like, hey, in the name of Jesus, I cast that, de that demon out or whatever. Is it possible that God would honor that and that for the sake of the demon possessed person that the spirit of God would work in, their, in, the, in them and cast the demon out? I, I don't see why that's impossible, but if they were doing it like at this rate at which Jesus did, I would think they probably aren't a false teacher. I mean, if they're just casting out demons left and right. Um, so generally speaking, it seems to be legitimizing you to some extent, if you're legitimately casting out demons, to some extent, to what extent will be another discussion. Excuse me. Aurelia has a question. Philosophy of Yum. I don't, I don't know if that's part of your name. Oh, that's your, you have a long YouTube name. Aurelia Philosophy of Yum Home Bakery Coach. There we go. Hi, Mike. I fully believe in the Trinity due to all of the scripture. All of scripture, but 1 Corinthians 8, 6 is a bit problematic and seems Unitarian. What do you think of it? Thank you for all you do. I don't know about you guys, but I get these questions and I go, I wonder what 1 Corinthians 8, 6 is. I hope I have a good answer for this question. Um, here we go. Yet for us, there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things, uh, and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things, and through whom we exist. Okay, clearly, there's one God, the Father, and then the Unitarian would suggest, and when we say there's one Lord, we mean Jesus is Lord, but he's not God. I mean, I'm assuming you say Unitarian. I don't know if that would be the correct place to put that interpretation. Let me put it on your screen. Sorry, guys. Um, I don't know, because the Unitarian would probably have a slightly different perspective. Um, at any rate, why is it that God's called the Father and Jesus is called the Lord and then we're told there's only one God, the Father? Well, let's just say this verse I don't think is trying to make the kind of difference between the Father and Son that many think it is. For one thing, it says there's one God, the Father, and one Lord, Jesus Christ. Wait, is the Father Lord? This is the word kurios in the Greek. This is actually the word that is used in the Old Testament, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, to replace the word Yahweh. They would commonly use the word Lord. There's only one Lord to refer to the Lord God. Kurios, right? God. This is, this is he's the Lord God. So if you want to affirm that, let's be consistent in our interpretation. If you want to affirm that Jesus is not God and use this verse, then you have to affirm that the Father and God, who is the Father, is not Lord. And you start to realize that he's not doing what we think he's doing. 
because clearly, clearly Paul, who teaches clearly of the deity of Christ, he thinks that Jesus is not just Lord, but he's also God. And he also thinks the Father is not just God, but he's also Lord. These two are, are one in a sense. Uh, now, in the scripture, oftentimes the word, now occasionally Jesus is directly called God. It occasionally does happen. Jesus is just called God. But it's not nearly as often as you might expect. More often, the Father is called God, and then Jesus in less, fewer, far fewer places is called God. I think that this was to combat um, modalism. Modalism being the idea that the Father becomes the Son, who becomes the Spirit, so that it's just sort of like God just sort of like impersonating different. God's almost like a puppeteer, right? Where he's like, here's my, here's my son puppet, here's the spirit puppet, but really there's only one person behind them and um, imitating different, different sort of personages, but there aren't really different persons. So I think to combat that view, God is called the Father and Jesus isn't just called God because it would potentially cause the problem of modalism. If Jesus is just called God over and over and God's called the Father, then it would create that issue. But we're trying to separate the persons of the Trinity while keeping together the, the um, one God nature of God. So his being or his nature, there's one God, yet there are three persons. I think that's consistent with this. Uh, the term God's usually a reference to the Father. The term Lord also sometimes often a reference to God. Here, a reference to Jesus Christ. And plenty of other scriptures to talk about the deity of Jesus, even in Paul's own writings. So I hope, I hope that helps. Let's go to number 18. Bane Mackey says, I believe I'm called to be a pastor. Well, that's awesome, Bane. Um, you're going to enjoy it and you're going to hate it. <laughs> such as, such as you will anything really important and worth doing. Um, I'm called to be a pastor, but I have sin and inconsistencies. Do you think this could mean I'm not called or do I just need to work on these things before being used in that area? Thanks for your thoughts. Um, yeah, work on them, work on them, work on them, work on them. Never lower your calling to match your, your compromises. Please never lower your calling to match your compromises. Get rid of your compromises and go serve the Lord and you will never be perfect. And you will never say, in every way, I'm a perfect example. But there are some things that you're like, no, I, I need to straighten this out so I can serve God in these different ways. Never lower your calling to match your compromises. Always ditch your compromises to reach up to your calling. Lay aside the sin and weight which so easily beset you and run with endurance the race set before you, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Number 19, and this is, a, I believe, a Korean name. I can't read. It's written in Korean here, so I apologize for that. Uh, when does God hear my prayers? I'm asking you this because my thoughts are barely controllable nowadays, and those thoughts are causing me to pray very weird things and think about things I don't want to think about. Oh, man. This is, this is listen, please go sit down with a compassionate, understanding, wise counselor and talk through all these issues in detail. I'm going to give you some things I hope are helpful for you, but... My thought is that you're going through a lot of stuff that I think someone you could just hold hands with someone and walk through it with them more slowly. That would be really beneficial. Don't be afraid of them judging you or looking, thinking weird things about you. Just know that you got to pour your heart out and you need someone there who can help you sift through all that and stuff and learn what to think about it. But let me say two things, at least two things about this. When does God hear your prayers? Um, God hears everything you think, everything you think, everything you meditate on everything you say. God hears it all. 
So when you say when God hears my prayers, the term hear prayer is usually in the scripture, not used to say that God's aware of your prayers, but to say that God is giving you like favorable listening to your prayers. Like he's, he's hearing you in a positive, like I am inclined to, to, to hear you and perhaps even do the thing you're asking me. So it's about God's posture towards you. When God hears your prayer, it's like God's accepting your prayer, um, as positive, as a good thing. doesn't mean he'll always do it, but he's accepting it as a good thing. Um, now you say this, my thoughts are barely controllable nowadays. And those thoughts are causing me to pray very weird things. Uh, can, can I ask you to do something? Consider separating your thoughts into two categories, things you agree with and things you don't agree with. This is a human condition. It's okay to have thoughts in your head that you don't agree with. I had a thought. I don't agree with that. And don't worry about it. I, for your own, all of you, for your own sake, my counsel, just being like, this is just me as a, I'm not saying I have scripture to tell you all this stuff. This is just my advice to you as like a, a, a brother in Christ. I would say, allow yourself to just say, there's a thought. I don't like it. I reject it, but I'm not going to sit here and have hours of angst over the fact that I even had the thought to start with because I, according now here's biblical teaching. I have flesh and spirit coexisting within me and the flesh lusts against the spirit. There are desires once that are opposed to the spirit of God in my life. The spirit desires for godly things, for good things. And so the work of the flesh is all kinds of immoral things. In Galatians, we read about it, right? This long list of all the stuff of the flesh and the spirit. It's like love, joy, peace, patience, gentleness. So this is going on inside me. This is a biblical thing. Like I actually have in me, according to scripture, desires coming from within me that I assign to this category of flesh. It's okay to simply say, I had that thought. I had this idea. I had this desire. And I just say, I reject it. This is the condition I'm in until I get my new body where I won't have to deal with this stuff anymore. The angst we spend like over the idea that we even had a bad thought is I think sort of useless angst, like wasted angst. <laughs> you're, you're not really accomplishing much at that point. Just say, you know what? I got the flesh just like everybody else. We have weird thoughts, bad desires. I reject it. I move on. That would be my encouragement. You have thoughts. Um, now you say causing you to pray weird things. Your thoughts are causing you to pray. Like here's where I'm encouraging you with some, some strength. You choose what to pray. You choose what to say to the Lord. You choose what thoughts to accept and reject. That's a decision you got to make. But I also want to encourage you with this. You can just groan to the Lord. Romans 8 talks about it. When we, when we don't know how to pray as we ought, the Holy Spirit, he intercedes, intercedes for us with groanings, which words cannot express. And he knows your heart and he knows God's heart, God's desires for you. And he can pray perfectly for you. So if you don't know what words to use, you can just groan to the Lord. I know that might sound weird. Somebody might think I'm being weird. I don't care. Listen, we groan all the time. My wife and me sometimes do this. She'll get home. And one of the first things she does when she gets home from work is it goes, because she's tired, right? I know what that, that, that groan contains informational content, right? I know what it means, especially because I know her better than other people do. The Lord knows your groans. You can groan to him and he understands. And the spirit intercedes in that very moment. I think it's beautiful. All right. Last question for today. Not rocket science says, is the theory of an infinite amount of universes biblical or unbiblical? That's a tough question. I don't know if I have commentary on scripture. Um, 
that specifically rules out infinite numbers of universes, but I will say this, there's nothing in scripture that I can think of that supports the idea of infinite universes. So we could at least say it's not biblical, right? Not unbiblical would mean there's like teaching against it, but not biblical or extra biblical would mean this is like, don't pretend this comes from the Bible. Now, the idea of an infinite universe, I speak now as a layman, not a physicist, um, but I've spent a little bit of time looking into it. And the idea of infinite universes, it seems to me, is another one of many efforts to rule out God as creator of all things. Now, I know there are some Christians who believe in numbers of universes. Um, infinite, I, I don't even know if it's possible to have an infinite actual number of anything. I don't personally think infinite actual numbers exist. Uh, infinite numbers of things actually exist. Infinite universes, how many is that? It's not even, infinite is not even a number. It's just an idea. I don't think there could be infinite, but let's suppose that there were, you know, crazy numbers. There's a Google of universes out there. Um, I think one of the reasons for this is because of the fine-tuning argument for the existence of God. And the fine-tuning argument, if I could try to quickly and perhaps clumsily summarize it, it goes like this. The constants and um, quantities of things in our universe, they're strange and they're strangely fine-tuned, it seems. So gravity or the strong nuclear force, weak nuclear force, the amount of matter versus dark matter, if, unless you guys want to say that doesn't exist. That's fine. I don't care. I don't want to debate about it. But the point is that the amounts of these things in the universe are very, it seems, carefully calibrated to allow for life forms to exist, such as the kind we have right here. That if you were to change some of those features just a tiny bit, you would never get like Sometimes you wouldn't even get atoms or you wouldn't get life forms for sure. Certainly not intelligent life forms like the ones we have now. Like we have all this empty space out in the universe. Well, that's part of, that's kind of important. You have to have that. That's part of the deal, you know? Um, so physics works a certain way and that allows life to exist. And if you tweaked it, like don't try to be sci-fi here. Let's be realistic. Like if you tweak it, things don't live anymore. This has caused a lot of physicists to say, God really exists. I mean, like the evidence from physics is suggesting that the universe was designed so that things could live. And some would respond, oh, well, there's there's all this space out there where you, you die if we threw you out in space. And the physicists would probably respond to that by saying, that's not what we're saying. We're not saying there's a maximal inhabitable space for us to exist. We're saying like nothing would exist in the universe at all if it wasn't for all these fine tuning elements. So this is a pretty powerful argument and very serious physicists put it forward. And many atheists have said it's the most powerful uh, argument for God's existence that they've heard. Um, although I think common sense is the most powerful argument for God. That's a side, a side issue there. Um, so the response to this has sometimes been, well, how about a multiverse theory? Let's say that there are countless universes and let's add another Hypothesis. We'll say also those countless universes, each of them has a different set of numbers running the physics. The physics is running slightly differently in all these different universes. This would hopefully increase the random chance that one of these universes would be the one we're in, where the physics just happens to be super carefully fine-tuned, you know, down to the nitty-gritty detail in tons of different ways to allow life to exist. It's like saying this. Let me make it real easy. Let's say that you have a die and the die has a million sides and you have to land on the number 742,312 or everyone dies. 
You roll the die, a million-sided die, which the fine-tuning of the universe is way way more than a million to one. It's it's way worse than that. But I roll the die, and it just happens to land on the, whatever number I just made up, 700-something thousand. And boom, we land there perfectly. And then everyone starts debating. Someone had to plan that out. There's no way. It's a million to one. There's no way with one die roll that we were able to just happen to land on the right number. And then finally somebody else comes and says, ah, but there's a million billion realities. And in all of those realities, somebody rolled a die. And in one of them, somebody got the right number. We just happened to be in that reality. And then now the statistical craziness of getting that number on one roll, it seems to be easier now, right? Because you have so many chances. The multiverse gives you more chances to randomly end up with a universe that has the numbers just right for physics, for us to live. Um, what I would suggest, though, is that, to my knowledge, there's no actual evidence for a multiverse. Uh, I think your desire, of the your, your leaning towards the multiverse most likely will be because you like the idea, like you think it's cute, you like it, or possibly because it seems like it would explain how we could try to not have God. But now we have another problem. Where on earth, think about this, where do countless universes come from? Like, you're, you're postulating to account for one universe, we'll just imagine gazillions of universes. And where are they exactly? <laughs> like, where do they, where and how and why? And why is the physics different in all of them? Why is the physics different in them all? What, what is, yeah. You would need God for a multiverse. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> you would need God. And I think it's great evidence for God as well, along with a number of other things that are great evidence for God. And it's a great place for us to end for today. Thank you for joining for the Friday live stream. Every Friday at 1 p.m. I do this. You guys are all welcome to be there, be part of it. Uh, Mondays I do teaching videos. Fridays I do Q&As. And I answer 20 questions from, from you guys uh, on the spot, giving you the best answers I can. Because I'm confident that Christianity is true that the Bible is the word of God, that Jesus really rose from the dead, and that real true life can be found in trusting in his name. That this whole, this whole thing is really down to a relationship between you and God that is accomplished by grace and forgiveness and love through Jesus Christ. And I want you to know it, you to live it, you to be able to share it with others. And um, so we do theology, apologetics, and all that good stuff. Thanks for joining, everybody. And uh, someone recommended, by the way, Brando in the live chat. I see you there, buddy. Recommended Reasonable Faith. They have fantastic videos on evidence for God. You can check out their YouTube page or their website. I think it's just reasonablefaith.org, maybe, dot something. You can check that out. All right. That's about it. Um, reminder, we got the Bible Thinker mugs if you want one. Uh, this is the old logo, which you can get. And then the new logo is also on there. Um, I don't make anything off of them. We're just taking $5 per mug, sending it over to various, I think, um, under under supported ministries that I just happen to find and want to throw support at. So take care.